Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. A lot of people seem to ask me if I've tried these fake meats, such as Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger. I'm not completely sure why. Perhaps they misunderstand the name Appropriate Omnivore. Maybe they think eating less meat is appropriate. Now, I'm not against an individual being vegan. While I see that the science shows we need to eat some kind of animal products to be healthy, I have no issue if a person is able to thrive on all plants. But as a podcaster and blogger who promotes healthy, natural, organic, non-GMO, non-processed, or minimally processed foods, whether they be from plants or animals, I can't recommend these fake meats on those principles. Here to get into more of what's in these products is Sarah Keogh, a clinical nutritionist in Maryland with a practice called Eco Nutrition. Sarah is also a technical advisor to the company Understanding Ag. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you on. We've known each other for a while, and actually, because a lot of listeners don't know, or maybe some do, this podcast is always recorded earlier, and then I release it after doing some editing. So we were talking a little bit before we were recording this, and we are actually talking for quite a while, um, and I just hope that <laughs> this podcast, we have as much fun as we did with the thing before it was recording. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so... Before we get into discussing these meats, tell the listeners a little about what you do in your practice. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, well, I'm a, I'm a functional medicine practitioner. So what that essentially means is I'm interested in helping my patients um, support the natural function of their bodies. That's what we mean by the term functional medicine. And obviously we want to get to the root cause of their health issues. And, you know, the vast majority of the time, it involves looking at what they're putting into their bodies. So that's why I've become so passionate about this whole field of, um, you know, regenerative agriculture and looking at how our food is really grown and and the soil health and chemicals and that kind of thing. But that's been at root for so many issues. And so really, the main thing I focus on in my practice is educating uh, patients about food quality and food sourcing and how to look past some of these labels to, you know, like I said, support the function of their body and give their body the nutrition it needs and also, you know, eliminate a lot of toxins coming in. So I do a lot of functional testing in my practice, looking at everything from toxins to um, things going on with the gut health and the microbiome, um, hormones, micronutrient deficiencies, so looking at vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And, you know, I think stool testing, as weird as it sounds, is like one of my favorite tests because I love looking at what's happening in the, in the gut and the microbiome because I find vast majority of time that's also at root for a lot of issues for people's imbalances in the microbiome. So I work with a wide variety of patients with you know, autoimmune diseases, um, heart disease, diabetes, you know, obesity, inflammation. So um, I, I'd work with, you know, like I said, I work with and support a lot of people through a wide variety of issues and um, starts with what's going on in the gut and what's, what's going on with their diet. And I know you also see an important part of their diet as eating food that's raised well environmentally. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And that's part of why 
I came up with that whole um, title for my practice of eco-nutrition. That name originates from two things. I mean, my background is actually in ecological work. So I was into conservation work uh, before I sort of transitioned into becoming a healthcare practitioner about 10 years ago. And yeah, I think when people learn how their food choices not only impact their health, but also help the environment, it's just, it's a win-win, you know, and, and people feel really good about the food they're purchasing, you know, when they when they know that it's good for both their health and, and environmental health. Yes. And I know something that you've been studying recently with part of what you do is you've been looking into what's in these fake meats such as Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger, uh, lab-grown meats. What inspired you to explore this topic? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a topic I didn't think I was um, going to invest as much time as I have been. Same here. Um, investing into it. And, and, <laughs> right? I just uh, I started exploring it um, actually probably within the last few years. You know, to be honest, when it first came up, I thought you know, what I do is living it. You need to look at the ingredients on the label and kind of assess the food from that standpoint first and foremost. I looked at the ingredients and I'm, you know, okay, this is totally processed food. It's just another new processed food creation that, you know, hopefully consumers, you know, understand that and they're going to catch on that this is just total, total junk in my opinion, you know, and and not it's going to become a fad and kind of disappear is what I thought. Right? I naively believed that. Um, and I was shocked to find that it was, you know, and, and still is kind of gaining momentum, all these, these plant-based meats and their popularity among consumers. So I thought, well, I need to look into this and really see what is driving this interest. And I would even have patients ask me, you know, patients that were pretty, I feel like, you know, food savvy, you know, so to speak, they, they understand the importance of forcing good quality food. Some of those patients would still even ask me, you know, well, what do you think about the plant-based meats? Like, do you think they're better for, for my health and the environment? And I thought, oh my God, you know, like even customers are kind of falling prey to some of this uh, marketing. So I started looking at consumer um, research studies and, you know, why consumers were so drawn to it and asking my patients and, and yeah, it's all just very, very clever and powerful marketing. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into more of my concerns over the, the health issues and environmental issues. But um, it's, it's very clear to me from the beginning. It's just another, you know, processed food on the market. But it's their, their um, the propaganda is, is real. <laughs> it is, because like I said in the beginning, I'm an advocate of all foods being the least processed to not press at all, whether it be a meat or a plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, we do have to get back to eating whole foods as much as possible and really even understand what that means. Um, because I think that's a, a term that kind of too, just like, you know, nutrient density and organic and, you know, really understanding what it means to have a diet that's based on whole foods. It's, you know, you're not eating things out of packages as much as possible. And, and looking at ingredients is key. I mean, number one, if you're looking at a, a package that has ingredients, well, that right there tells you there's been some processing and um, that's not to say everything in my home is like, you know, not in packages. There's definitely some packaged foods I buy from time to time, but you can still see even on the ingredients label when for the most part, it's, you know, a whole food ingredient and has been maybe minimally processed, but yeah, there's varying degrees of processing and, you know, we could split hairs over, you know, what's, what's super processed, what's ultra processed versus what's minimally processed, but um, I think the biggest thing is the quality of the ingredients and um, where it came from. Like, did a factory or was factory or lab required to create some of those ingredients? Like, that's, that's a huge problem. Yes. So as your practice is both about getting people on foods which are good for them and good for the planet, we're going to talk about both why these fake meats are bad for 
people and for the planet. So first, let's start with the health reasons that these fake meats are so bad. Yeah, well, uh, I could go on and on and on about that, <laughs> but in a nutshell, um, it's, it's the processing is a problem, but it's, it's where, where are these ingredients coming from? What have they been sprayed with? So I wrote a series of articles um, for Understanding Ag called Artificial Animals. It's a three-part series that um, maybe you can link somewhere in your show notes. And I highly recommend people read those if they want to learn more and also see all the scientific, you know, sort of references that I based my claims on as far as why this stuff is truly unhealthy. But, you know, the, the number one thing, like I mentioned before, is that people really look at ingredients and not just look at the nutrition facts. And, you know, what we're discovering in some of these uh, consumer research um, surveys is that people are just kind of looking at the nutrition facts, meaning they're looking at the calories and the fats and the carbohydrates and saying, oh, this looks pretty comparable to beef. And, you know, I'm being told it's better for my health and the environment, so I'm going to buy it. But if we really dig deep and um, look at all the different ingredients in these foods, I and mean, just, they're just riddled with problems. I mean, we have um, one of the most popular brands, the you know, Impossible Foods products. Um, soy is one of the main ingredients. And they make no secret about the fact that it is totally uh, genetically modified soy. Um, in fact, they seem pretty boastful and proud of the fact that they use genetically modified soy in their, in their burgers and other you know, fake meat products. So, um, you know, the, the issues with GMOs are plentiful, too, and there's a lot of big concerns about that, um, you know, in film and, and how it affects immune health and stimulates kind of autoimmunity. But soy in and of itself is one of the top, you know, allergens in, in this country. And um, there's people that have genuine food allergies to soy um, where they're quite reactive. And then you have, um, like, food, um, soy sensitivities. Um, where it's not quite a true allergy, but you're still um, developing maybe some immune system issues or gut issues in response to it. Um, and, and not to mention that the vast majority of soy in this, in this country is sprayed with glyphosate, um, you know, just one of many toxic compounds in Roundup, you know, pretty ubiquitous herbicide. So we have, uh, you know, toxin exposure that people are getting through eating these foods. And that's just soy. <laughs> I really go into all the other additives. Um, that are both in the Impossible Burger and uh, Beyond Meat. And, um, you know, I, I picked those two to talk about almost exclusively just because they are the leading brands on the market right now. But if you look, um, you know, fake meat burgers, you're going to find actually pretty similar. I mean, Boca Burgers have been doing this for a long time. You know, I remember when I was vegetarian, I was eating Boca Burgers and, you know, didn't know anything about food quality. Um, so I, I definitely relate to the average consumer in that you're just, oh, this is healthy and I'm told it's healthy and, and it, it tastes pretty decent. So, you know, I'm going to do this instead of meat. But if you look at the ingredients, it's almost the same as impossible. Um, soy protein concentrate, um, there's wheat gluten, which actually impossible did take out. They took out the gluten. Um, but there's methyl cellulose, um, propus polyunsaturated fat, uh, like corn oils, um, even sunflower oil that I think is in the Beyond Meat product. And all these other additives, yeast extract. So it's actually not anything super new, really, but it's, you know, Impossible Foods put a, a whole different spin on it by creating a brand new ingredient that has not undergone um, adequate safety testing called soy leg hemoglobin. Well, we, we really don't know all the issues with it quite yet, but on some of just the short um, studies that have been done on, on rat feeding studies, there's some researchers that found statistically significant, potentially adverse effects in these rat feeding studies where they're um, given this brand new genetically modified um, soy lake hemoglobin. Uh, soy lake hemoglobin is what gives 
Impossible Foods uh, products, their meaty flavor. It mimics the heme iron that's in meat, and it can't really be um, like naturally cultivated unless you, uh, you know, dig up a ton of soy plants and pull it off of the, the root nodules of soy. So what they did is they create, um, create this ingredient like a bioreactor using genetically modified yeast. Um, so again, this is a novel ingredient that we've never been exposed to and we don't have adequate safety testing on. And now we're introducing these foods into school systems and so on and so forth. So um, there's a lot of question marks about some of these ingredients. And um, this, I'm very concerned about the inflammatory aspects of a lot of these ingredients as well as um, the immunogenic properties, meaning how they stimulate the immune system in negative ways and, and also how they impact the microbiome. With the Impossible Burger, I recall that in the beginning they were using a non-GMO soy and then basically what they found, because it is more involved with making non-GMO products and there's such a big demand for it because everyone thinks that these burgers are healthier and it will cut carbon emissions. And so, you know, they have this big demand. A lot of people want to buy them restaurants want to use them. And basically what they said is we can't use non-GMO with our demand for it, which I was just like, whoa. I mean, cause that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's just <laughs> a commitment against the small farms. And I mean, that just like made it go from bad to worse. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, put it out there. I mean, these companies have zero interest in supporting small farmers. Um, they're all about industrial large-scale operations. It's their stated mission to end all animal agriculture by the year 2035. You know, they're, they're, they're part of this huge um, agenda to really just kind of end all traditional ways of farming. And yeah, so it's very clearly on their website that genetic engineering is an essential part of our mission and our product. So they're preaching that same uh, message, that the same narrative that we cannot survive as a human species without, you know, genetically modified ingredients, which is just total BS. You know, we know that it can be done through regenerative practices. And if we have more of that, we can absolutely produce vast amounts of food, just small amounts of land and have it be, you know, very wholesome food and nourishing food. Uh, the bottom line is more profit. And I've said that in my articles, it's just very profit driven. And um, they're not going to embrace what, what small scale farmers are doing by any means. Doesn't support their mission. Yes. And in addition to using the GMO soy, also there's a big issue. And I know you touched upon this a little earlier of the vegetable oils that they use in their products. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I believe it's, um, I don't have the ingredients list up in front of me. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think it was, um, it's sunflower oil that I think is in Beyond products and then Impossible. Um, I want to say they have the corn oil or vegetable oil, but yeah, they all use these polyunsaturated fats, you know, what we call poofa fats. And these are fats that we would have never, you know, eaten in nature, right? They're, they're derived through industrial processes and um, they, they're fats that are essentially, you know, kind of turned rancid, especially when they go through these high heat industrial processes. They're not, they're just not um, anything that's going to support health. They just turn on inflammation. Uh, they really skew what's called an omega-3 and 6. Uh, ratio. So um, omega-3s and 6s are, are both good fats, actually. We need them, and they have to be within a certain ratio to one another. And, you know, a lot of people know omega-3s, of course, they're very popularized with the whole fish oil craze and eating more seafood, and they're important for turning off inflammation, you know, regulating the whole inflammatory response, immune system response, um, and incredibly important for cognitive health, for brain health, um, sort of like an essential building block of your nervous system. But if you 
have way too many omega sixes, it, it tips that balance in the wrong direction. And you don't, if you don't have enough omega threes, that's when you're promoting more inflammation. Um, so I don't like to villainize omega sixes. There are healthy omega sixes, but um, they, we need them in balance. Number one, we need them in balance with omega threes, and number two, we should never be consuming these, you know, highly inflammatory omega sixes uh, that that come from all these uh, these seed oils, essentially. And it's Dr. Uh, Kate Daniel, uh, in Deep Nutrition. She really hammers that point in. Um, I mean, she really goes into to detail about the omega-6s and keeps promoting, um, you know, the research on that. So, yeah, it's Dr. Kate Shanahan in Deep Nutrition who really talks about that. Yes, and I have the ingredients for both of the products here. So <laughs> Beyond Meat, what they use is... They use an expeller pressed canola oil go, canola. and Impossible Burger. They're the one that use coconut oil and sunflower oil. Right. Yeah. So they tried to um, mimic the saturated fat content of meat by adding in the uh, coconut oil, which has, of course, some saturated fat. Um, but they're very different saturated fats that are never going to be the same. Um, they're not like the same kind of unhealthy um, saturated fats that you get in meat. And, you know, there are healthy saturated fats in coconut oil, but they're different. Um, and yeah, so the sunflower oil, um, I think what's important for your audience to understand, and they're probably pretty, hopefully pretty savvy in, in understanding these processed oils are bad, but they're all the same when it comes to sunflower oil, canola, vegetable oil, you know, which is essentially corn oil. Um, all of these fats contain these, uh, proof of fats that promote inflammation. And what I'm really seeing now is this big trend of using sunflower oil in a lot of products, right? Everything from, you know, whatever hummus to packaged yes. goods. Yeah. So I know you're seeing that too. And, it, and um, I think that's another way the consumers are being fooled because they're like, Oh, well it's not canola and it's not soybean oil. Right. So, which is, you know, soybean oil is very ubiquitous in, in salad dressings and condiments and so many packaged goods. Um, so at least the big, you know, fake meat producers avoided using the soybean oil, but it's kind of, silly to me that you know they would use canola oil um when they are when you know impossible is already using genetically modified soy protein but anyway they're, they're all the same the basic messages they're all the same those are all inflammatory fats do you support the use of sunflower oil if it's cold pressed and unheated i you know i do to some degree it, it gets a little controversial right because then it i've i've even looked at some of those and it's like oh is it truly cold pressed because when you get into the manufacturing processes um i'm not an expert on this topic but when you do actually look at the manufacturing process, um, they might say it's cold pressed, but there is like some low heat processing in some of those. And I, I don't know how that alters the fat, but the, here's what I go back to, Aaron. Let's think about where did we eat this in nature? Um, did we actually like it through, through history? Like where, where would our ancestors have eaten sunflower oil? Like were they pressing sunflower seeds and extracting all the oil? I, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I don't think it's, like the way Mediterranean regions have been pressing olives and using olive oil um, for so long. But I, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's a natural oil to be using. I certainly wouldn't cook with it. Um, if I were to use it, I mean, it's, I don't get any in my diet, to be honest, at least not intentionally. If, if it is, it might, it's in some nutritional supplements. And I would rather have a little bit of sunflower oil instead of a soybean oil, just because I'm one of those people that's reactive to soy. Mm -hmm. um, so at least it takes kind of that allergenic, you know, allergenicity factor out of it. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's still going to have those polyunsaturated fats. It is true that it is very hard to find a truly cold press. But if anyone is looking for that, if they want to use it for something like a salad dressing or a mayonnaise, where I would recommend going is the Wise Tradition Shopping Guide by the Weston A. Price Foundation. Anyone in there, I would trust because 
Sally Fallon and Mary Enig were definitely leaders in explaining healthy fast mm -hmm. to us. And that's pretty much where I've learned all this about finding truly cold pressed. Yeah. So the first one that comes to mind is the oil barn by Bob Quinn, who also owns Kamut Flour. He has a great truly cold pressed sunflower oil. A uh, follow-up question I would have is when a restaurant does use a sunflower oil to cook something in, like perhaps a lot of restaurants say our fries are cooked in 100% non-GMO sunflower oil. Do you think that's still better than cooking something such as fries in a sunflower oil than a soybean oil or a canola oil? Or when it's heated, is it pretty much all the same thing? Uh, yeah, from what I understand and from what I've looked into, it's all the same. I mean, when you're heating those type of fats, it's just going to alter them. I mean, even avocado oil, I, I do admittedly use a little avocado oil to cook with, but it still has a high omega-6 content. And I don't know that there's like a lot of firm research to say, oh, yeah, when you're heating avocado oil, um, you know, certain temperatures, how does it alter those fats or the sunflower oil? You know, I, I would love to see some some literature on that. To really clarify but I'm not I'm not I'm just not comfortable with using omega-6s in that way so if I'm if I'm exposing anything to heat I mean it's olive oil is a little different because it does have um, you know different polyphenols and antioxidants to almost kind of protect the fat from heat even though you know it doesn't have necessarily a high smoke point um, you have something like grapeseed oil right which has a very high smoke point but it's it's still very high in omega-6s it's really high in omega-6s um, so I don't know, like how much does the antioxidant content protect some of that oxidation from the heat, I think is an interesting question. I'd actually love to pick like Dr. Kate Shanahan's brain about that. Um, but I, I just, I'm not comfortable like with any kind of heat processes. Now you mentioned like mayonnaise, right? And so, okay, mayonnaise, um, I've used the sunflower oil mayo before, but I'd rather use like the avocado oil based. It's still not going to be quite as high in um, some of those omega-6s and it's the extraction process for avocado oil, pressing the flesh um, and not the seed. I think anything that's dried from a seed, we have to be careful with heat. If I'm cooking something at home, I absolutely would not use sunflower oil. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have to be honest, though, as I know we talked about before the show, that when we eat out, we don't go for being 100% perfect. Right. I feel like if I'm at a restaurant where it says it's cooked in sunflower oil, yes, yeah, certainly I wish that the restaurant would... Instead, cook the fries in tallow. Yeah, duck fat. Lard. <laughs> duck fat. Right. But when I see it say sunflower oil, I will say that I still feel a little better that they did that than canola oil. Yeah. If for no reason at all, my major point would be that at least it doesn't use any GMO product. Sure. Yeah. I, I agree with you in that respect, especially if I buy something in a store and it's like some yummy little cookie or whatever. And I think, oh, all right, there's a little bit of sunflower oil. Eh, not my favorite thing to see, but I would rather choose that over something that has soybean oil or canola. But it's all sort of, it could sound like splitting hairs, you know, like, oh, which one's really the best. But I think it's all kind of the same. So, I, but I, I think that's what's really deceptive, though, with these meats, because, you know, they're trying to make it seem a little healthier. It's just so funny to me that, you know, possible the one using the sunflower oil when I would actually expect that of Beyond, because it seemed like Beyond was trying to make an attempt to make their product look a little cleaner and healthier by using pea protein instead of soy. Uh, but then they're the ones who use the canola oil. <laughs> so it's just like, yeah, it's just interesting. I, I wonder what decision making went into that. Like, oh, let's use sunflower oil over soybean. I mean, why not just use soybean oil when you're already using soy protein concentrate? So I, I don't know. It's it's that's where though the marketing, like I said, is a little deceptive because they're eliminating certain things that are gonna look more healthy and appealing, you know, to the consumer. 
I think the reason that companies like Impossible want to use sunflower oil and they feel okay with it, as they are pushing plant-based products, obviously they don't see the same we do about saturated fat. Like you said, they use the coconut oil for the taste, but they also probably don't believe that these omega-6 oils mm-hmm. are bad like we do. And specifically with sunflower oil, it's like I said earlier that the reason they are okay with that one is it's non-GMO. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they do like that. Of course, Impossible is using GMO soy. So it is a little weird that why they use it. It's almost like they do know somewhat that it's bad <laughs> or they are have some concern that maybe some of their consumers, because vegans are concerned with GMOs too, at least some are. So that is a little weird thing, but it does have to do with that of, and that's the reason why a lot of restaurants are using it is they think that at least the non-GMO part will work with the sunflower oil. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of just one of those, I feel like it's one of those little tricks in the food industry. (laughs) You know, it's like there's some new thing that kind of catches on as, as a replacement for something else. And then we find out there's there's other issues with it too, but you know, yeah, it's the bottom line is, I mean, all these ingredients, it's nothing that really supports health. And I have people tell me too, that they don't feel well sometimes with eating these things and they get some GI issues or, you know, and of course, and there, there's some people that eat it and probably feel fine. But um, for some of my patients, I mean, I'm working with a patient population that's, that's sensitive and just, you know, I, I would say easily half or more of my patients have one or more autoimmune conditions. And so when we're talking about that level of um, immune system dysregulation, is it, it, you know, goes far beyond just what's going on with these bad fats. It's all these other additives as well as the, you know, genetically modified soy and the, the pea protein that potentially contains some glyphosate contamination, you know. It's all these things together that are just kind of synergistically um, altering immune system function and, and inflammation in the body. Yes, because as I understand, neither of these products are certified organic, right. and I don't think they even list any of their ingredients as organic right. either. So that's another issue. And I always wonder with some of these, it's not just a thing with vegan products, plant-based products, but... I also notice this with products such as ones that are marketed as gluten free <laughs> and they're able to be marketed as these like natural health products. So you see them sold at a store like a Whole Foods or a Sprouts, mm-hmm. but they really don't have that. And do you think that these companies can just expect the customers to assume that they're organic because of what they're doing? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on probably the consumer. I think some people are really um, careful to kind of look for the organic, you know, label and things. And so they'd probably look at that and say, oh, these aren't organic. But I guess for, you know, a majority of people that are still buying these things, I guess that's not a concern to them. You know, they're not looking for the organic certification. And so, no, I mean, I, I guess by and large, that's probably not a concern for consumers, unfortunately. Even though we've, you and I have talked about, you know, the imperfections of organic and, you know, there's, it's definitely not a perfect system or certification by any means, but we do have enough evidence and some studies to show that, you know, when people go on a more quote unquote organic diet, meaning buying things that are absolutely certified organic, we do see levels of glyphosate drop in their body. You know, we could do urine testing to look at glyphosate. And I think HRI labs has published really good research on that. And, and so it's very clear that, you know, at least you're reducing your total toxic burden. Um, and that's something I talk to consumers about and, and my patients about, 
is that you we're all going to be exposed to toxins. We are not in a perfect world anymore. It's not pristine and toxin free, but you have to do everything you can to reduce that toxic burden. And eating foods like this is not going to help that at all. I mean, these are just full of toxins. And with these toxins that are in the mm -hmm. foods from the glyphosate and other pesticides that are sprayed, obviously that makes it bad for people's health. Mm -hmm. It's also a way that makes these fake meats unsustainable. So let's go into now what you see as the main reasons that Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger are unsustainable. Yeah, and that's a really important topic. Um, and it's, it's something that the consumers aren't thinking a lot about because, again, when we go back to the consumer um, research studies, on their interest in the, the plant-based meats, they're mostly concerned about health. That's the biggest driver as far as why people are choosing to eat these, but um, they're also concerned about the environment. That usually ranks up there reasonably high as well. And so, you know, they, they, there is this perception it's better for the environment. Again, that's part of the marketing that's happening here. Uh, but the agricultural practices that are utilized, um, you know, to grow the majority of the, the ingredients in these, these fake meat products are really unsustainable. And when we look at where the soy comes from, if anybody were to go to one of these giant monocrop soy operations, you don't even have to go there. Just go online and Google it. You know, look at, look at what's actually happening. They're killing the soil, which is very destructive um, to the soil, and it actually releases more carbon um, into the atmosphere. So that's not helping the environment. Um, it's destroying, you know, these mycorrhizal um, fungi, these networks of my mycorrhizal fungi within the soil. And that is um, a huge source of carbon sequestration in the soil. Um, so tilling really destroys all that. But on top of that, you know, we're spraying like crazy and that's destroying the microbial life in the soil. Um, that's affecting pollinator species. Um, that's destroying biodiversity. And so, again, my background's in ecological work, so I, I think sometimes like um, an ecologist and that, you know, and it's just kind of amazing how it's kind of all come full circle with my background and, and health and nutrition and how, you know, again, these eating choices are very connected to the sustainability of our, our food system. And true sustainability is having healthy, robust ecosystems. If we have healthy soil, if we have biodiversity, um, we are going to have sustainability because we need to regenerate right we have to go beyond just sustainable ag organic agriculture we have to go beyond that and we have to start regenerating ecosystem health and so if you go to these you know soybean farms uh, you know, where and also where they're growing legumes and peas they're spraying like crazy they're destroying soil um, you're not going to see biodiversity at all you know you hardly see any insects sometimes you know it's, it's just really sad and you can see how terrible the soil looks as well um, so I, I really um, have taken impossible foods, especially to task on this issue. Um, there was kind of this big debate that happened on uh, LinkedIn, of all places, where their, um, I think it was their VP of uh, marketing, she basically posted this ad that they just came out with saying, we are meat. That was impossible foods' um, latest ad campaign. We are meat, you know, really declaring that they're actually meat. And of course, they got <laughs> kind of attacked by some of us in the regenerative ag community. And And my question to them was, well, tell me what you're doing to build soil. Tell me what you're doing to restore ecosystems. When you, we can show me that, then yes, you are helping the environment, but you're not, and they know they're not. And it's a lie to, to say that we're meat, and it's a lie to say that they're better for the environment. Um, so it, it's not truly sustainable by any stretch. They're not building soil health, period. Saying they're meat reminds me of the whole thing of these 
products made out of almonds or soy or rice or even coconuts <laughs> and calling them milk. Yeah. And the question response is, well, how do you milk an almond? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. I know. And I, you know, we've gotten so far from what real food is anymore too, you know, again, whole real food. I mean, in all fairness, um, so I'm dairy sensitive, you know, I try not to eat a lot of dairy. And so I've, I've explored a lot of these dairy free alternatives. Um, and there's a few brands I like that I feel like do a good job and try to source good ingredients and they're, they're not overly processed, but yeah, it's just bizarre when we're, when we're milking these nuts and calling it, you know, a milk that we can drink. It's just so like, I don't know. It's it's not sustainable either. If you look at what happens on almond orchards, I mean, it's it's terrible, you know, with what we do to bees and like these bee CAFOs, you know, so there's, it, it's, it's like sending bees off to wars that I've heard some of the, these beekeepers say in order to, um, you know, pollinate and take care of all these um, almond orchards, but uh, they're sprayed like crazy too. And so a lot of these, I think something is really important for consumers to think about is a lot of these almond-based products, which are huge in like the paleo community, a lot of them are not organic. And believe me, they have some glyphosate um, contamination. You can you look at some of that research from you know some of these third-party labs that are testing. So think about how many things that are almond-based um, that aren't organic either. And so, yeah, it's like a lot of these plant-based um, alternatives, whether it's meats or milks or whatever, whatever, you know, they're using whatever plant food they're using to replace animal products. They're not from a good source typically. And again, they're, they're not, those products too are not doing anything to restore soil and ecosystem health. Yes, almonds can be one of the most unsustainable foods. In addition to being sprayed with a lot of harsh chemicals, the yeah. other issue with almonds, and this is especially a big issue here. Yes, in water. California, as I was about to say, yes, water. You Obviously, we yeah, read a lot of the same sources, yeah. and so, yeah, obviously, we're very much on the same wavelength. But <laughs> another problem I have with these processed milk products is all the ingredients. Because here's the thing, yes, a lot of people do have issues with dairy, and I understand that people may still want the dairy taste, because I can't really say that any of them give the health benefits of dairy that really... Mm -hmm. If you have dairy sensitivities, dairy allergies, yeah. the best product in place of them, I would say, and this was what Kayla Daniel says, is bone broth. But if you just want the taste, then mm -hmm. probably the best thing would be to make it yourself sure. or try to find a product, which they're very hard to find, of ones that are minimally processed. Because I find with a lot of these fake milks, often the second ingredient, maybe even the first, is sugar. Mm -hmm. And then there's other things that they have in them, yes. like synthetic vitamins, carrageenan. Yep. <laughs> even calcium carbonate, because they're trying to mimic the calcium in milk, so they fortify it with Right. Oh, carbonate. yeah. I mean, I mean, I could go on. I was <laughs> yeah. just listing the top ones. But I'm sure with your background, you've probably seen a lot of the ingredients and maybe yeah. of, uh, <laughs> great memory of what's yeah. in these. It's, yeah. It's not good stuff. So, yeah, I'm a full agreement with that if you are going to have you know, to, to, if you're going to eat those things to, to stay away from dairy, just make it yourself as much as you can. Or there's a few good brands I found out there that are just superb. I mean, they, they're organic and they're, they're whole food. They don't have all those additives. Um, and those might be the things, like I said, that I consume from time to time. But for the most part, it's like, all right, I just don't drink milk anymore. You know, it flares my autoimmunity. So I don't, um, you know, I have a little bit of psoriasis. So I just try to stay away from some of that. But, you know, 
some people can have a little hit from time to time as long as it's good quality, right? Love well, sourcing, grass-fed, organic, you know, <laughs> um, dairy can can sometimes make a difference, you know. Right. And a lot of people in these ancestral communities, mm -hmm. Western Price, Paleo, yeah. a lot of them don't do dairy. Uh, but of course, they're still able to remain healthy because they do other things like specifically, as I mentioned, bone broth that gets a lot of the benefits that you can get in dairy. And they also remain healthy because they eat a lot of healthy, nutrient dense, pasture raised animals mm -hmm. of different variety. But in regards to vegetarianism and veganism, do you think that there is a way that either of those diets could be healthy and sustainable? Well, that's a two part question. And so, you know, healthy, I mean, sure, you know, if, again, like we talked about, if you're sourcing foods, um, products that come from a good source, um, ideally regenerative processes, which, you know, we don't have nearly enough regenerative farmers out there. And that's why we have to support our farmers and keep encouraging those practices and support farmers going through that transition, right? So we have more regenerative products available then, yeah, I mean, sure. I, I think I'm a big believer in bio-individuality. And that just basically is a fancy word for we're all so freaking different, right? We all thrive on different things and mm -hmm. our biochemistry is completely different from one another, um, you know, our physiology and, and our uh, genetics. So I feel like some people genuinely do better on more plant-based. Um, and also different health conditions we have to factor in too. I mean, I feel like, you know, certain cancers um, seem to do better with plant-based. It just really depends on that, that particular individual. But I, I think there's a way, obviously, to do it in a healthy way as long as you're not eating all that processed stuff. And um, as far as like, can vegetarianism and veganism be sustainable? I mean, sure. I mean, animals are part of an ecosystem. And that's, that's essentially what everyone needs to understand is that animals are part of a well-functioning, healthy ecosystem and do so many incredible things for the soil. Um, you know, we, we can always get into regenerative practices and what that means. I'm sure you've talked about that before in some of your shows, but it's sustainable. Uh, you don't have to eat the animals, right? You can still uh, be like David Bronner, who fully support uh, regenerative practices using livestock, but hey, he's a vegan. Um, so, yeah, I mean, can you be part of um, helping to support and promote regenerative practices and regenerative forms of agriculture and still be vegan? Yeah, sure, of course. So I don't, if the world went vegan the way these, you know, um, <laughs> these companies are encouraging us to do, and it goes beyond that, you know, it's not just these companies that have this agenda. There's a very powerful, you know, global agenda right now um, for many Many of these international organizations that are pushing this plant-based agenda, and that I disagree with. I don't think that turning the world into vegans or putting us all on plant-based diets is going to do anything to help our ecosystems. It all goes back to nature, and we have to mimic what nature's doing, and nature includes animals. And the fact is we need a lot more animals on land. <laughs> we need a, so, so many more mm -hmm. that we used to have, right? And it, it could restore so many different system. So we, I mean, defining sustainability, I think is important. You know, when you ask that type of question too, it's like, okay, what is sustainable? We have to really think past that and just think about what is going to be more regenerative versus sustainable. And then that's where regen ag comes mm -hmm. in. Regenerative agriculture comes in. Yes. Cause I'm sure a lot of these peas and soybeans that were used to grow these fake meats, there was animal fertilizer that was used to help grow them. Yeah, exactly. Unless they want to be reliant on, um, you know, chemical fertilizers, right? Which is not a healthy system, not a healthy agricultural system. So, yeah, yeah, animals are involved in 
so many different processes. Right, because I know that the two main ones we've been focusing on this show of Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, we mentioned that neither of those are organic, but I know that I have seen some organic fake meats, so there are some out there, and yeah. with this thing, like it said, because I know there's some other new brands now that are doing these fake meats that there likely will be some organic one. I mean, and also I know there are some organic almond milks that yeah. are used. So, yeah. So obviously for some, there has to be some actual fertilizer that comes from livestock mm -hmm. with some of these products. Yeah, that's a very good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And now you were talking earlier about how when you were a vegetarian, you had some of these veggie burgers. Mm -hmm. Have you tried these current ones of the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat? No, I haven't. And I get that question a lot. And I'm, I'm totally not opposed to trying them. I guess every time I'm in the health food store, you know, I'll see the products there. Me and my boyfriend will be shopping together and we're like, oh, should we try it? Should we just buy it? <laughs> you know, I just want to see what it tastes like. I'm so curious because I hear, I hear a lot of different things. I mean, I have patients that tell me it's like, oh, no, I'd rather have a real burger. But then I have other people that rave about it. So it's affecting everybody's palate and taste buds a little differently uh, or a lot differently. But I, I don't know. I'm really curious what my palate would pick up on because here's the thing that I think about, Aaron, and I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot too because we're both such foodies. Um, when people eat like such a processed food diet, um, their palate is just really altered in such a way that it, it kind of responds almost really well to like all these um, ingredients that make things hyper palatable, right? And so for people that are you know, be more like us that are eating really whole food diets and clean diets. And we're used to just tasting, tasting the, the wholesome goodness and real food. Like when I eat stuff that's full of chemicals and junk, I can pick up on that. You know, it just like doesn't taste, it just tastes off to me. And I used to eat that stuff. I don't think it was good. Right. So you can alter your palate and your taste buds. And I'm very curious what, what my palate would pick up on. I guess like next time I'm at you know, a, a vegetarian restaurant or something with one of my, my vegetarian friends, I'll, if, they, if they try it, I'll, I'll get, have a bite and just see what it's like. So, you know, not opposed to trying it. I can't bring myself to buy it. <laughs> As I see it, there are essentially two kinds of veggie burgers. So the first kind is one where it really tastes like the veggies. They roll a lot of different ones or maybe one. And it's called a burger in the sense that it's rolled into a patty. Yeah. And then the other type is ones where they basically want it to taste exactly like meat, mm -hmm. but it's not. Now, when you were vegetarian, did you like both types? Um, so, I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a burger that's tasted really meaty. You know, I've always had, that's why I'm very, like, you know, intrigued, I have to say, with Impossible's product, because, you know, what does this soy, like, hemoglobin uh, flavor really taste like, you know? Um, but no, I, I can't say that I've, ever had a burger that's like, oh yeah, this tastes just like meat. But I've had I've had really tasty veggie burgers, you know, as I'm sure you may have that are, you know, whole whole ingredients like mushrooms and beans and, you know, I love a good bean or lentil burger. I, I mean I've I've seen a few products like that on, on the market. They're kind of few and far between, right? Everything else is super processed. But I, I still think those because I, I you know, I love the taste of beans and lentils. So, you know, why wouldn't I like a patty that's made out of those, especially if it has these, you know, onions and seasonings and things like that in it. But no, there's nothing to me that's ever really tasted like meat as far as all those veggie burgers go. Yes, I have had veggie burgers, but only a handful of times. I'm trying to even remember the times <laughs> I've had. And if I recall, I think there was only one time that I had one which was supposed to taste like meat, because yeah, it definitely 
didn't have any veggie flavor in it. And now this was almost 20 years ago. And yeah, it it didn't. I, I said it tasted like newspaper. Now, my understanding of Beyond an Impossible is there's supposed to be this advanced technology where now it really does taste like meat. You can't tell that it isn't. So it could be different than these other ones. That's very much the argument and also why they're certainly able to sell better than they were 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I've, I saw this YouTube video of like these um, ranchers, you know, cattle ranchers, and they, they did like one of these taste tests where, you know, can you tell which one's the fake meat and real meat? And they thought the impossible burger was the real burger. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, that blew my mind. And even the ranchers were like, they couldn't believe they fell for it. They said, you've got to be kidding. Like, no way. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really fooling people's taste buds. Um, you know, it's really just tricking people into thinking that it's, it's, it's me because of that soy like hemoglobin. That's, that's like even, you know, Impossible Foods is very proud of that, you know, that ingredient. It's this patented thing, right? They're a very unique technology and it's their magic ingredient, they call it, um, for making it really taste like meat and kind of bleed like meat, you know, look very meaty. Yes. So, um, you know, one of my articles was titled um, Rancid Fats, Harmful Additives, and the Controversial Plant Blood. Um, because it's almost like plant blood, you know, the, the soy leg hemoglobin. Um, it's, it's very interesting what they've done to manipulate us in the lab uh, to make it synthesize that, that taste and look of meat. So I can't deny that I'm intrigued by it. I think it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's also very creepy. And, you know, I certainly would not consume it <laughs> on a regular basis yes. <laughs> or at all. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by it, too, because vegans often talk about how disgusted they are at looking at this meat as it's animals being slaughtered, they'll yeah. label it flesh, yet then they want to eat it. So do you have any theories as to why they want to do it if they're so disgusted by it? You know, I, I've asked some of my patients that are, you know, more plant-based and, you know, and I say, you know, so what, what, why were you curious in trying it? You know, if you're, especially for the people that are, you know, more staunch vegans because of the ethical reasons, right? Um, I mean, I think by and large, they just kind of, they actually do kind of miss meat sometimes. They miss the flavor. And maybe they're probably also missing the feeling of health that it gave them. And if you think about the work of Dr. Fred Provenza and how he talks about that whole flavor feedback mechanism, right, and how our body um, can pick up on the nutrition of a food um, once once we kind of connect a flavor to it, sort of, you know, it's like you're, it's like you, I think they inherently know that, okay, this is like nutritious for me, but they can't get maybe past ethical reasons. And so then by eating something that is actually plant-based, they feel better about it. Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the feedback I've gotten. And, and that, that, that makes sense. I mean, I get it. It is also just another one of those bizarre things though, right? Like why do you, why would you still make it look like meat if it bothers you so much? I would think there's kind of a psychological aversion you'd have to eating something that even looks like an animal product, but I don't know. It's, it is kind of bizarre to me, too, when you think about it from that standpoint. All of that makes sense. Now, I have actually a rather bizarre theory, though, as to why they do. And it's not all vegans, but here is a thing I found about the ones who do like the fake meat is I found that they're often big fans of horror movies. Rob Zombie, who in addition to being a musician, he -hmm. also makes these horror movies. He's a vegan. He loves to eat them. There was someone in LA that was doing one of those haunted hayride tours 
and she's a vegan, so she would also offer vegan meat products available on the hayride. <laughs> so I th- huh. wonder if there's something to that. And I've talked to vegans, vegetarians who don't like the fake meats, and often the ones I found that say that they tell me they're not into horror movies. Well, that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about that perspective. And I personally, I mean, I personally don't watch a lot of horror movies, but I grew up watching horror movies. And, you know, when you think about what horror movies do to you from, um, you know, like a psychological standpoint and how your um, sympathetic and um, parasympathetic nervous system works, I mean, it really can throw those things out of balance, meaning it kind of like when you watch horror movies, it puts you into a fight or flight mode. And when you're <laughs> this is, I'm not trying to generalize with all people that watch horror movies, but if you kind of are obsessed with that genre of movies, um, you might be in more of this activated state of fight or flight. And that in a way shuts down your brain's reason, you know, uh, reasoning abilities and, and some, some cognitive abilities to reason through things. So I don't know, because it's still to me from, <laughs> from hearing that I thought, that doesn't make any sense to me, <laughs> but I, I can get the connection there. I can get the connection, but it, it's just like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> right. Cause I mean, if you like horror movies, it doesn't necessarily mean that you think that killing is right, but you just enjoy it as yeah. this kind of entertainment and you know that it's fake that, you know, none of the corpses in the films are real. Right. You just have this kind of thrill out of it. And for vegans who like that, it's the same way with, the meat that they have this enjoyment of yeah. pretending that they're eating the animals just like they're seeing with these horror movies of this pretend killing yeah it's like the obsession of the macabre of it right that's disturbing kind right of, like yeah the horror the horror over death and <laughs> interesting i never thought of any, any of that from that perspective before <laughs> it's something that i've noticed for a while and this was maybe about like 10 or so years ago and it's been more confirmed than in the last five or so years when I've heard things like Rob Zombie being a vegan and liking fake wow. meats or this woman who started this haunted hayride in LA and just <laughs> the people that I know that often like the fake meats. That's what I found. So mm. I think there could be something to it. Yep. I'm sure for certain subsets of the population, I, yep, that makes sense. <laughs> And more about these non-meat burgers, are there any types of ones you'd recommend to vegetarians and vegans? Yeah, actually, I think it's Amy's Kitchen um, has like a brand of organic uh, veggie burgers. And I think each one has kind of like different themes. I think there's like a Sonoma one and a California one. or And I've looked those up before and they're soy free and organic. And I think mushrooms is usually like one of the first ingredients. And I'm like a huge mushroom fan. So... Um, you know, I think those type of ingredients are, yeah, great. I mean, I would actually eat something like that. Organic mushrooms, um, sometimes they have some grains in there, you know, maybe some rice or maybe some beans or lentils and lots of seasonings, you know, and then veggies. So something like that. I mean, some of them still have some of the oils. That's, that's the thing I see that's kind of problematic with them. I think they have some of the, you know, the safflower or sunflower oil, but they're organic, high oleic. And that's something we didn't really get into when we are talking about the fats. But, um, you know, the oleic acid is actually a really uh, beneficial type of omega-9 fat. And so you can um, utilize more of the oleic acid in those from those fats rather than have it concentrated in omega-6s. So just as a, a quick aside from what we were talking about earlier, you can have like a cold-pressed high oleic um, safflower or sunflower oil that can be 
um, kind of healing to the body. But anyway, those are some more of the brands that I would probably encourage people to eat if they're going to eat some of those, some of the, the real deal veggie burgers. A type of veggie burger I'd recommend, I don't actually have a specific brand for it, but I've seen it at restaurants, and that is a falafel burger. Yeah. And like you're saying, of course, the issue with falafel is what is it fried in? But <laughs> I guess just at least for me, I'm part of the taste side because I grew up with eating falafel. Mm. There's a type of veggie burger that I would gladly eat. I love falafel, so yeah, totally in agreement there. <laughs> so as we're talking about, we are seeing a lot more fake meat. Impossible and Beyond are the two biggest ones, but I know that more recently a couple other companies have launched fake meat lines. Do you think this fake meat movement currently has more momentum than the push for grass-fed pasture-raised meats? Boy, it's, you know, it's uh, there's definitely a lot of momentum for sure, and um, I am very concerned that it might actually be greater than the push for pasture-raised meats just because of how powerful, like I said, that propaganda is and that, that narrative that they keep pushing that, you know, meat is just this, this terrible thing for your health, this terrible thing for the environment. Um, meat is just so, is being so badly villainized. And it's, and it's just interesting how it seems to have been way more powerful over the last, what, like five to 10 years, you know, I mean, it's always kind of been one of those things that you hear about, but you you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's been very aggressive over recent years and especially during the pandemic, it's just kind of like, whoa, okay. You saw the big meat processors really affected. And that was kind of like one of those things that was something that the plant-based meat companies kind of used to their advantage to say, oh, well, you know, look at all these, you know, terrible big meat processors and, you know, the worker conditions. And of course, you know, none of that is good either. You know, I'm, I think we're all in agreement that industrial uh, animal ag is, is not a good thing. And neither are these big meat processors uh, where people are working in terrible conditions. And, and so anyway, I, I, I feel like, yeah, there's a ton of momentum from a global standpoint, Aaron. And that's, that's what really deeply concerns me. And I, I, if I haven't sent you that, that video already, I, I would love um, for you maybe to somehow link that somewhere for people to watch uh, with Dr. Uh, Frederic Leroy. And he goes into this, very interesting presentation. He's done an extensive amount of research um, into the various global organizations that are part of this initiative to end animal agriculture. Um, There's even this organization called um, 50 by 40, and their plan um, essentially for the planet is to eliminate 50% of livestock by the year 2040. Um, so 50 by 40. So, you, you know, they're just one of them. And then, of course, you have Impossible Foods with their their initiative to end, end it by 2035, everything by 2035. And so it, it's really sad because now it's also becoming very political. And we're seeing certain laws in certain states that are making it very difficult for small farmers to really even thrive. So, yeah, there is this, this very unfortunate push towards fake meat and the momentum is gaining. And, you know, see, I kind of look at what's going on with the stocks too. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Impossible Foods is still not publicly traded, but it, Beyond is. And I think they had a rough first quarter this year and then they're kind of bouncing back. And I don't know, it, it seems like they're all, seems like they're all gaining momentum and popularity though. Cause, and this is where we really have to um, get back to consumer education. And I so appreciate this podcast and anyone else that's able to get the message out about how bad these foods are for our health and the environment because we have to educate consumers. I mean, if they don't have a market, they don't have anyone to sell their product to because we can wake people up in time, um, they're not going to survive. You know, these plant-based 
meat companies are really not going to thrive. They're going to have to to learn to do something different <laughs> to actually help our environment. But I, the 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 reality is right now there's um, there's way too many consumers that are interested in in their product. We focused mainly on the two big ones, Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger, but Another one, and this is more a concept than actually a company, is lab-grown meat. Mm. Have you looked into that? You know, I haven't as much, uh, to be honest, and that's just because I've been so crazy busy that even just all the, the time and research I invested in the plant-based meats <laughs> was uh, was a lot. But I, I haven't looked um, as deeply into the lab-grown meats, and I've, I've watched a few videos, though. I don't know if you've ever seen the videos on YouTube of the, um, the 3D printed meats. <laughs> and how totally disgusting and creepy they are. It's just so uh, mind-boggling that we have reached this point in human history where we can think that that is okay to consume, you know, that we we can just create and synthesize all these fake foods through, you know, it's one thing to take a plant food and kind of alter it and process it, but then to, you know, synthesize something in these huge bioreactors that, that aren't good for the environment. You know, these are all very energy intensive processes to, to make these foods. Um, but, you know, they'll try to argue the contrary, of course, that it's, it's, it is better for the environment. Um, but, you know, that I don't know. And we don't, the thing is, we don't have research, right? We don't have any research that says that these are safe to eat. Um, so how do we even know that? So the cell-cultured meat and the 3D-printed meats and all these other weird, bizarre things, um, using technology to create food, I'm just really deeply concerned about. And uh, I think there is some concern among consumers, but I'd like to see more of the consumer research um, studies on that because, you know, I don't know. I think it does sound a little creepy to, to most people, but I don't know. I haven't looked a lot into it either. And I think the main reason is that, whereas these other ones are actual companies, we know more about them. We really don't know much about the lab-grown meat mm-hmm. yet, and on surface, it just doesn't sound like a good idea. One for health, well, generally I don't want something that was made in the lab. I want something that comes from a farm. Mm-hmm. And also from an environmental perspective, it really goes back to the whole idea of regenerative agriculture. Growing meat in a lab is not going to improve the soil. Bingo. Yep, exactly. And that, that's the bottom line. If, if these companies cannot even... Um, answer that question. I mean, they, they can't even respond to it. They, what can they say? You know, we, we confront them with that question of what are you doing to restore ecosystems? What are you doing to restore our dying grassland ecosystems across North America? How are you going to help the drought situation that's happening out West? You know, what is your product doing for that? Just cutting back on animal livestock is not going to fix any of those things. And like I said, there's no question that we do have to shift the way we farm and ranch. We have to get animals out of these feedlots and get them onto the land and manage them properly so that they are restoring the soil and, and the grassland ecosystems and all that. But, you know, they, they, they cannot do anything to really, truly regenerate our planet. With these fake meats, I would say that the main target is vegans and vegetarians, but we do also see some meat eaters who will occasionally eat these fake meats thinking that it's better for them, so have a fake meat once in a while. What is your thought on people who are okay with eating meat, but will occasionally eat an Impossible or Beyond Burger? Well, actually, I, I want to say that it, you know, I, I once also believed what you just said too about um, they're targeting vegans and, and vegetarians, but they're not. The reality is they are targeting meat eaters. So that is that's who they're after. That's their audience. They are trying to convert people from eating real meat to this stuff. You know, because of course they're going <laughs> to be much more profitable. They can go after everybody. Um, 
you know, for people that are so they're targeting future vegans. Exactly, they're trying. Yeah, they're trying to create vegans, you know, out of meat eaters. And so, I, I think for people that are occasionally eating it, you know, they're they're thinking that okay, well, I can still kind of you know maybe have my cake and eat it too by you know I, I still get my meat from time to time and I'm still doing something good for the environment by you know occasionally eating these plant based meats and even Bill Gates, you know, who of course is heavily invested in all of these um, plant-based meat companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe even some of the cell-based meats too, but definitely a huge investor in Impossible Foods, um, who's, you know, as a lot of people may know, he's recently just said like <laughs> in his book, all industrial nations, all rich nations need to go to 100% synthetic meat. Um, he's even said in um, a fairly recent YouTube interview that I saw that he's about 50-50, so he'll eat the plant-based meat part of the time and then eat real meat uh, because he's always made it. He's always talked about how much he loves um, burgers. He's made it very clear. It's like one of his favorite foods and some of his blog writings and such. But so he, it's interesting to me. It's like, okay, you're, you're trying to get people to convert um, to eating this stuff 100% of the time. You're not even really doing it yet. You're having a hard time transitioning off of real meat because you love it so much. But yeah, I, I think people feel like they're they're kind of balancing it that way by, you know, it's like there's this guilt, right, that's associated with meat, especially red meat, you know, less so with like chicken, which is people don't realize how bad, you know, capo poultry operations are. Um, but there's just so much shaming and like stigma around eating like lots of red meat. Um, and then when you eat these plant-based meats, it's like, oh, I'm doing something good. So it's like, I think that's the way people kind of balancing it out in, in their mind, you know, on <laughs> doing something good for their health and the environment. And if these meat eaters like them and eat them occasionally, well, okay. But if the only reason that they're eating them is because they think it's better for them, then they really have no reason to do it. So can we guide these people back in the right direction? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I'm striving to do all the time. I mean, I think if we just teach people that fundamental message um, of are you eating a food that is contributing to a regenerative or a degenerative process. We just ask people that question, um, and it's a question they're not going to initially understand, right, until they get some education around food systems and and how food is um, grown and produced. Uh, But if we can really start asking that question and get consumers to think about that, and if they learn about, you know, how these foods are really not helping the environment, and, and on top of the course, educating them about the potential, you know, health issues, that's where I think we can steer people back in the right direction. And, that, and I have, you know, like I said, the patients that come to me and say, oh, yeah, I've kind of eaten some of this Beyond Burger for a while. And I said, okay, well, you know, I, I first get curious, you know, it's important to approach it, approach these types of situations without judgment, right, and just coming down on people. Um, I get curious, I get really curious and, and ask, you know, okay, well, tell me why, you know, what, what drew you to these foods? What do you, what do you think is the benefit of it? And and then listen and then give some education and people are more open that way, you know, to hearing what you have to say. Um, obviously it's different for me. I'm their healthcare provider and they're, they're coming to see me for that advice. But if you're talking to your friends and talking to your family and I get this question a lot, Aaron, where people are saying, Oh yeah, my family is, you know, sold on eating this stuff and they don't want to eat meat anymore. You know, what can I do? It's, it's hard when you're talking to your friends and family about it. Um, because you know, <laughs> you, you know, you want to get angry and, and just say, what the hell are you doing eating this stuff, you know? But you have to really just kind of approach it in a non-judgmental way and, and give the educational piece of it. Um, and that's why I wrote the articles that I wrote and, and tried to spend a lot of time on those and putting, like I said, a lot of scientific references in there to really break it down very clearly um, what 
all of these ingredients could potentially do to from a health standpoint, because that's what everyone's most concerned about, right, is how this product's going to affect their health in either a good or, you know, good way or bad way. And so if, if we educate people on that and they really learn, I, I yeah, I absolutely think people can be steered towards me. I mean, people are so happy, right, when you teach that, and I'm sure you experience this too, oh, when you, yeah. when you um, educate someone on, on regenerative ad, right, they're like, oh, my God, and they watch movies like Kiss the Ground or Sacred Cow, and they're like, wow, I never knew that eating meat is not only good for the environment, like, wow, holy cow, <laughs> pun intended, you know, it, wow, for my health, like this helps my health too. It's not going to give me cancer and heart disease and digestive issues. I mean, people just feel so happy and they feel so free and they don't have this guilt about eating meat anymore. And so I think just giving people that, that positive encouragement and, and more so, maybe not, I don't want to call fear mongery, but you know, not scaring them and, and fear mongering them out of eating plant-based meats, but really just promoting what um, regeneratively raised meat can do for them. And while fake meats and the vegan movement have gained traction, as we've been talking about this whole show, interestingly, there's also a lot of people going in the exact opposite direction and following the carnivore diet. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the carnivore diet? Oh, man, so many. Uh, I, you know, when I first heard of carnivore, I don't know how many years ago, I thought, wow, that's too extreme. You know, that's crazy. I can't believe people do that. You know, just the initial judgments there, right? I think for most people when they first hear about carnivore diets. And in general, you know, I'm not, I am not a fan of extreme diets and very restrictive diets. Um, and many reasons for that. I mean, you're limiting probably the amount of um, variety of nutrients you can get. Um, you know, I think diversity is so important and so huge in a diet. Um, and I, I'm also, I come from a, a history of eating disorders and you know, I struggled with an eating disorder for over 20 years. And I know that restrictive diets um, for a lot of people, um, at least sometimes on a subconscious level, can kind of steer them in that path of very disordered eating and a really dysfunctional relationship with food. So, you know, and that's not for everyone. Some people could just probably be on carnivore forever and be perfectly happy like Sean Baker, right? But I actually get a, a fair number of people from the carnivore community come to see me and say, you know, I don't want to eat this way anymore. Like, I, I don't. I feel better when I do it, but I want to heal my gut. You know, I want my gut to work right. I want my... Um, inflammation to calm down. I want my autoimmunity to not flare up when I eat other foods. How can I expand my diet and have more variety? And so that's, I love walking people through that process. It's, it's just one of my favorite things to do is to help restore the gut and the microbiome and um, get that inflammation to calm down. And there's, there's so many different things I do in my practice to help that process along. But I see carnivore as this amazing therapeutic tool. Um, I don't love the idea of like everybody doing it necessarily long term. That's just my personal belief. I did carnivore for a few months during the winter time. I'm here in uh, central Maryland and uh, a lot of things don't grow, you know, all year round here like you, like where you have in California. Uh, so during the winter, I don't have a lot of fresh local produce. I don't have my garden going. So I, you know, I eat, I eat more meat and I had a variety. I still try to get diversity. I mean, I had lots of seafood, you know, um, lots of scallops and oysters and fish and, um, tons of red meat. I mean, I absolutely love red meat. Um, you know, goat and, you know, beef, variety of red meat, chicken, eggs. Um, so I mixed it up and tried to make it like as diverse as possible. So I didn't get bored, but I, I did get pretty bored after a few months and couldn't wait for spring to come back around. But it, it, great because it cuts back on um, food prep time 
kind of nice to just like throw a steak on the grill or whatever, cook something real quick and easy, and and that's it. You don't have to mess with chopping vegetables and and all that stuff. But you know, I, I love variety. I mean, life without onion and garlic and and herbs and seasonings. Like I, I just I love all that stuff about food. I'm a total foodie. So um, I feel like carnivores are great incredible therapeutic tool you know and and maybe just eating kind of seasonally um carnivore is what i'm a big fan on like i would i would totally do it again i would totally eat like um carnivore during the winter i think it just makes sense for where i live and what kind of food i've access here too but but yeah by and large i feel like a lot of people are just kind of doing it because they feel better and they see the benefit and then they do it for some time but then they're they get a little burnt out on it and they, they want all that variety back in their diet again. They don't want to keep eating this way forever. And that's similar to the thoughts I have on veganism as I understand it can be therapeutic for a time, but I'm not so sure about mm-hmm. doing it long term. I believe we're meant to be omnivores, so mm-hmm. that's why really neither of those diets I think fits what we're meant to eat. But with both of them, I have to say, if it can work with the people, then okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And someone's cool just eating that way for the rest of their lives. And, you know, uh, just your, your five steaks for breakfast and <laughs> burgers and whatever, you know, it's like, um, I mean, it was, it was great. It was kind of fun. I had like one day, I just had like a whole pack of bacon for lunch. And it was, I, I was like, wow, how am I going to feel? This is like salt overload. And, <laughs> and I felt great. I actually really enjoyed it. Like I felt, I definitely felt my energy increase. You know, I don't, I've, largely worked through a lot of my past digestive issues. I've really worked to heal my gut and so I don't have a lot of adverse um, issues with that. But I, I did notice like I felt you know a little less bloaty at times than I would feel if I was eating like a really fiber heavy diet. So I'm also kind of on the fence now about fiber too. And like mm, maybe fiber is a little overrated for some people. I have some patients that just do fabulous with lots of fiber. I mean, they just, they just do so amazing with fiber. And other patients, obviously, they're, it's just the worst thing in the world for them. They're horribly bloated and get very sick and goes back to that bioindividuality, you know, what it, what's going on in your gut, you know, what's happening with you in, in, on an individual basis that you can't tolerate some of those foods. My goal is to always work people towards the most diverse diet they can possibly have and supporting them and whatever their goal is, really. Yes, I think there's a lot of different nuances in people and there really is no one size fits all diet absolutely yeah no for sure we're just about out of time but before we go tell the listeners where they can find information about your practice sure yeah so uh they can reach out to me through email it's probably the best way to contact me um so my email is sarah without an h so sarah at eco-nutrition.com and um i don't have an official website yet um, I keep joking around about this. But I need it. I need to find a really great website developer to <laughs> just throw something up for me because I haven't had, I haven't gotten around to that, but I'm fairly active on, um, Facebook. If you want to find me on Facebook and, uh, connect with me there, I try to kind of treat Facebook as a little bit more of like a, um, newsfeed sort of thing, almost like Twitter. So I'm just posting stuff about region ag and kind of talking about the issues around plant-based meat. So if you want to keep up with me there, where I post some things, but otherwise, if you uh, want to learn more about my practice and what I do and how I can help you, the email is probably the best way to reach out to me. Excellent. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Oh, thanks so much, Aaron. That was fun. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. Next week, I interview Alec Jaffe, founder and CEO of Alex Ice Cream, as we celebrate National Ice Cream Month. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. 
You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed. <laughs>